0: If you're someone who's been told you weren't good enough, not big enough, not fast enough, not smart enough, or if you've ever felt paralyzed by a failure you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. Hustle and Motivate is a blueprint built by guests who've overcome obstacles, silenced critics, and overcome adversity by seeing every failure as an opportunity, realizing the true power of the underdog mentality. This is Tyler O'Shea, and you're listening to Hustle & Motivate. Welcome back. For all our returning listeners, thank you for the kind words over the past few months. Your support really means the world to me. Today's guest is a totally blind man who, in his own words, transformed himself from a morbidly obese, failed carnival owner to a respected amusement equipment broker in the best health of his life. Known as the blind blogger, Max Ivey is always up for new challenges and opportunities. With three published books, his own podcast, and a blog, he's trying to help others find the courage to do the same. Here is Max Ivey. What was it like growing up, totally blind like for people who don't know could you just try to describe what that was like maybe maybe a better way to ask ask that question is you know in addition to the struggles every kid goes through what other things did you have to learn that most people might take for granted
1: right right well I didn't um, go completely blind until I was in college I didn't start using a white cane until I was in junior high school Um, but through throughout my life it seemed like I was always having to adjust and learn new things because The thing that's caused my vision loss, uh, RP, has resulted in a gradual, well, sometimes not so gradual loss of vision. So uh, when I was four or five, six years old, it didn't really affect me at all, except uh, they noticed I fell down and ran into things more than than the rest of the kids did. And uh, like I say, as I got into junior high school, I had a little bit uh, bigger drop off in vision, so I had to start using a white cane and um, started learning to read braille and started using first a, first large print, then a large, then a, like a closed circuit TV to magnify the text and then eventually to audio and braille only. Um, they had instructors come and teach me about crossing streets and using buses and, tr- and you know, we didn't have trains, but the airport and things like that and um, I, I grew up in a family that was a large family my mom had uh, five brothers and sisters uh, we lived in on a piece of property where all the families had a house so um, when the bus stopped at our house to let kids off it took a while and because of that you know i I had uh, a lot of uh, cousins plus my younger brother to to look out for me sometimes they changed the rules of the game so I had a better chance to play with them Uh, when, as, as you know, but maybe your audience doesn't know yet, my family was in the carnival business and some of them still are during the spring and fall, we would stay with relatives during the summer when we would, uh, we would travel with the rest of the family. Um, my grandmother and other people would put me to work thinking that as long as they had me doing something where they was watching me, I wasn't going to get hurt or get into trouble. So, um, they would like, yeah, Max, we're going to let you do stuff none of the other kids get to do. Uh, We're going to let you help put the popcorn in the boxes and put the butter on them or put the syrup on the snow cones and stuff like that. So my grandmother was a great believer that you could not be bored if you had something to do. And then uh, as I got into high school, I would work on the weekends and I went to college. I got a, a degree in political science. I attempted to get into law schools, but was not successful. I did the training at Lions World Services for the Blind in Arkansas to work for the Internal Revenue Service, which I did for about three years before I finally decided my mental health was more more valuable than the check they were writing me. Um, I spent a lot of time with taxpayers who had just gotten that letter saying all the nasty things we could and would do to them if they didn't pay. (laughs) So that was not a fun job when it got to the point where I'd get up in the morning and go, okay. I have three blocks to walk from here to the, to the office. There's a payphone at the Grandy's chicken joint between here and there. If I get to the Grandy's and I'm not sure whether or not I want to go to work today or call in sick, that was when I was like, okay, it's time to quit here and go somewhere else. And while working with a traveling carnival was not an easy job, it was much easier on the mind and the body than, uh, than handling people with the internal revenue service. So I, um, Joined up with the family carnival, I did the bookings, and this was before the internet, so what we would do is my dad or my brother would read out names and phone numbers, and I would take them down on a Perkins Brailler, and then I would just start calling people until hopefully I found people that wanted to book our small carnival for their fair or festival or their church, church event. Uh, I did that, uh, worked with the family for about 11 years until my dad's death, And then after he died in 2003, we kept the carnival going for about three more years. But I could see that uh, we were not going to be successful long term. So I said, Max, what else do you know that you can do? Because you need to start doing it now. And I thought, Mm -hmm. well, when dad was alive, if we needed to sell a piece of equipment, um, I would work with him to find somebody to buy that. Because in a small carnival or small business, usually the only way you buy newer stuff is to sell the older stuff. So I thought, well, I'll try that. That may be a profession. And of course, man, did I not have the first clue how much I didn't know um, because this was the beginning of people doing business online with websites and I didn't know what HTML or PHP or Java or any of that stuff was. We filed for a domain name as the Midway Marketplace, not having the first clue how I was going to get online. Or manage a website or any of that stuff. Uh, My brother, Michael, who is one of those gifted people who has an extra gene because he understands electronics and computers and the internet and a lot of other things I don't even want to know about. He uh, he built my first website, but then he got a really high paying job working for another carnival owner. And I was without a webmaster. I didn't have the money to hire somebody. If I had had the money, I'm not sure I would have had the trust to turn the the keys to my car over to somebody else. So yeah, I was like, yeah. what do I do next? So I started asking a bunch of questions online and eventually somebody pointed me to the w3c.org schools. And they said, if you'll just go through their tutorials, you'll learn a lot of this stuff and then you can come back and ask us some smart questions, which implied to me <laughs> that they were tired of answering my dumb ones. <laughs> so I did that. I started, you know, I figured out how to create the home page and links and, uh, your email link and images stu- embed images and stuff like that. And I did okay except for the one part where you select your colors for your website. Um, at this time I have very little vision and online you have two choices. You can either use the numbers that match up to color names or colors, or you can use the names. And I was like, you know, I got no idea what number goes with what color of blue or yellow. or So I just decided to go with the words. And I picked yellow for the background because when I could see, I remembered that things looked better on the midway on yellow than they did on white. I chose blue for the text, red for the link text, and orange for the previously clicked link text. And what I would find out later is that the yellow was once called ice-creaming yellow, the blue was navy, the red was brick, (laughs) and the orange was fluorescent orange like something you'd see off the side of a dive bar. Uh, I was oh, told man. more than once my site was so bright it could be argued over by Ray Charles or Stevie Wonder. <laughs> it was bad. It was very oh, bad, but it was a website. <laughs> this was pre-WordPress, pre-Wi-Fi, pre-Facebook and other social media. And Ooh. what I did was the same thing I do now is okay, this is as good as I can do the website right now. So do I do I, you know, fret about the site? Do I worry about it? Do I, you know, try to make it better? even though I know in my heart there's only so much I can do to it? Or do I focus on selling the equipment? So what I did was I've spent my time on what I could do something about. I reached out to people and and tried to convince them to put their equipment on my website, which wasn't easy because there were other websites operating on a free basis where people didn't have to pay you anything because those sites had had other businesses before the Internet, and they had sponsors, so they didn't have to charge. I was telling people, yeah, I'll sell your equipment, but I need you to send me 10% of whatever we get for it when you sell it. And they're like, mm-hmm. why should I pay some new guy I've never heard of 10% when I can get done for free other places? You know, so I had to figure out ways to get people to list their equipment to actually to even answer my emails. And before I ever heard about the idea of a lead, a lead, magnet, lead magnet, however you say that phrase, Um, I thought, what can I do for these people that they want and need that they'll decide they want to start opening my emails? And I thought, everybody's trying to get traffic to their website. So what if I give them a free link on my site, but go a little farther and create the link for them, send them an email and say, look, here's your link on my website. This is going to help you get traffic to your site. It doesn't cost you anything. All you have to do for me to leave it here is to agree to get an email from me no more than once a week. And from that, I grew a huge global international email list that I still use now, although I don't focus as much on the selling of amusement equipment as I used to. But that was, you know, it was like a lot of things for me is, is more about doing than knowing what the heck I was doing or what it would be called or how you're supposed to do it. But basically just doing what I could and then doing the next thing after that. So that's, you know, that gets you from... Me being a blind kid growing up in a carnival family to the Midway Marketplace, and people were inspired by me, do, you know, doing these things, you know, the email list, social media, recording videos. And they're like, Max, we want to hear more about the challenges, experiences, and lessons you can teach us as a blind entrepreneur. So that led to me starting a second website as The Blind Blogger, which is the name people had been referring to me as on LinkedIn and Facebook at the time. So when I decided I was going to start a second website and a second blog, people said, Max, we've been calling you the blind blogger for two years now. You might as well just see if that's available. If it is, run with it. And man, am I glad I listened to those people because <laughs> three or four years later now, uh, if you search on Google for the blind blogger or blind blogger, you're going to find Max Ivy. So that was a good decision. Yeah, uh, no. Since then, I've written three books. I'm working on a fourth. I've traveled cross country solo more than once. First as the as one of the Amtrak riders and residents, I've spoken publicly. Uh, I've sang in public, although nobody has ever none of that none of those videos have ever gone viral. Uh, and now I've got my own podcast, as you mentioned. The what's your excuse? And uh, I'm also helping other authors, speakers, podcasters get exposure for their businesses and their passions by connecting them with hosts of shows and uh, blogs and online summits and things like that so they can share their stories and reach new audiences and build their brands. So I don't know. Do we have any time left?
0: Yeah, we got plenty of time, man. I really want to...
1: it feels like I've been talking for an hour, you know, so I just no. want to make sure.
0: <laughs> no, it's been about like 10 minutes, but okay, um, good. I would really like to dive into your, your weight loss journey because I saw on your website, you know, in your words, you went from 512 pounds to a 250 pound lean, mean machine in just two years. How, how did you do that and what led you to that transformation?
1: Right. Well, that um, at the time I started um, the Midway Marketplace, I was having some health problems and I was told by a doctor in Port Lavaca, Texas, that I needed to address my health or I wouldn't be around much longer. So I saw a primary care physician and the first thing she did was um, have me tested for sleep apnea because she believed I had it but couldn't treat me until I was tested. It turned out I had a pretty severe case, so uh, they put me on a CPAP machine. And one thing about uh, when you're not getting good sleep is when you start getting quality sleep and rest, it can affect just about every aspect of everything you do. Um, I found that I had more energy, more passion, more creativity, and was a whole lot less negative when people would suggest things that I could do or ask me, why don't I try doing something else? Uh, very night and day personality shift between not getting good sleep and using the CPAP machine. And I mentioned that because a lot of people who are in business for themselves They're doing this as a side hustle, and most of them are trading sleep for their passion. And, you know, you can get away with that in the short Mm -hmm. term, but it's not something that works long term. So I really advise people not to do it if they can avoid it. Um, The same doctor who had me get the sleep study suggested I go and at least listen to a seminar on gastric surgery. And I went thinking, no, this is not for me because, you know, this is only for people who are ready to give up and quit and admit that they – Uh, that they can't do it themselves. And and what I found out at the seminar is that only 50% of the people who have a gastric surgery lose 80 to 90% of the weight they want to lose. And the ones who succeed, succeed because they do a lot of hard work and they change their lifestyle one small piece of it at a time over the course of the months before and after having the surgery. And the reason that I'm not back up to 400 or 500 pounds is because I did change so many things. I've uh, exercised more regularly, drink a lot more water, have replaced liquids like milk and, and juice with solids like uh, string cheese, cottage cheese, and actual fruit or dried fruit. Let's see. what? Else? Um, no caffeine. Um, changing the sizes of the plates you eat off of and the portions you take in and and changing the the kinds of foods you eat and how they're prepared. And those are just the things that come off the top of my head right now. You know, I see my doctor. And the one thing I I tell people all the time is if you're going to see your doctor and you're going to pay those insurance premiums to go see them, then be honest with them. When they ask Mm -hmm. you if there's anything that you are concerned about, then tell them. If they ask you, If they tell you that you need to lose weight or do something else that they believe will improve your health and your lifespan, then don't just say, yeah, I'll do that and walk out and hope you don't see them again for a year. Tell them, okay, you think I need to do this? And I agree. You're probably right. Um, I need some help. And what can you do? What can the system do to help me accomplish these things that you believe I need to in order to improve my health? Mm -hmm.
0: So tell me about the process of writing a book.
1: Right. Well, I like to tell people that I never intended to write three books. I never intended to write a book as far as that is concerned. But a good friend of mine online, Eve Koivula, basically dared me to write a book. And I often tell people that one of the best things that can happen for you is for a good friend to double dog dare you to do something that you've never thought about doing or that you're scared to do it. And she said, Max, I want you to be on this online summit with me in a couple of months. There's four other women lined up. And I think you would make a good fifth person. She said, but you need to have something you can give away or something you can sell cheap or for less than what you'd usually charge for it. I think you should write a book. I'm like, I've never written a book. I have no desire to write a book. She said, well, I think you could. I said, I wouldn't even know where to start. She said, I'll send you a resource I wrote for writing your first book. She said, and I think you can do it by the time the summit starts. I said, yeah, sure, that's going to happen. That's two months away. And she shared with me her favorite quote from Richard Branson, which is promise to deliver and then figure out a way how or something along those lines. And I said, you know, that sounds great. It sounds like something I would believe in. But if this don't go well, I'm going to blame it all on you at the time of the summit. She said, that's fine. So I start writing the book. I figure I'll write about my experiences going from the uh, from the failed blind carnival owner to the uh, equipment broker. And that'll be a good first book, especially since most people I was talking to at that time were business based podcasts, because my version of bootstrapping was very inspiring to people as well. Um, I started writing it a few weeks later. She says, Max, the, there, the four other women in this, in this thing have decided that it would make a better marketing hook if it was all women. So you're out. And I said, well, that's fine because I grew up with a, a carney. I've got, you know, I've been a promoter. I've got well, the of people like Ray, like, uh, like, you know, like Colonel Parker and, uh, and Barnum running through my veins somewhere back in the distant past. I understand about putting feet on the ground, butts in the seats or faces behind the screen. I said, but I've started writing the book. I'm enjoying writing. I'm not going to stop. So I finished the book in October. And then the usual writer's fear sets in because I was like, I don't know about this. The book really didn't feel long enough or important enough. There didn't seem to be enough in it. And I started uh, sending it to people that I knew, that I trusted, and asking their opinions. And everybody was telling me how great it was. And I was still nervous. I was like, Man, I don't know about this. And finally, a woman I know in California, a coach, said, Max, I know who your editor is or who you've used on your website because you've mentioned her in the past. And her name is Lorraine Regularly. Uh She has a website called wordingwell.com. And, you know, part of my brand is not only accepting help from others, but giving thanks for it when they do. So I had to get her name in there. I hope that's okay with you because without her, there would be no books. Yeah. So she's like, Max, I know who this, I know who she is. So if you don't send it off and start getting this published, I'm going to send it to her for you. So I did that and between November of 2013 January 2014 we did work together to get the book edited and published and I do have to give her credit for turning my suggestions and what I did along my path into the exercises that are included in the book and I think it was a, I think it's a really really solid book especially for a first book So you you mentioned traveling
0: cross-country by yourself, singing in public, doing all types of adventurous things. Tell me about some of that stuff and you know what makes you so willing to take on difficult challenges.
1: Well, I think part of the the thing, and I've had a discussion with this with people. Some people refer to this as negative, some people call it just a different way of looking at things, but I like to tell people I'm not smart enough to be scared. And I think some people will tell me, "You know, Max, you have a a childlike wonder about things or you just have a uh, a belief that no matter what the experience it, it is, it will it will be positive, it will be something that you can can think about and enjoy later." But I think the real thing is is I just don't see these things as scary the same way other people do. Now, I have a list of things I want no mm-hmm. part of. I I don't see any reason for bungee jumping, skydiving, whitewater rafting, or climbing mountains, uh, especially since when you get to the top of the mountain, all you have to do is come right back down that puppy. <laughs> and true. most people who climb mountains, the next thing they do is try to find a bigger, taller mountain or try <laughs> to find a way to do it that's even more challenging than the way they used to do it. Um, And I used to have this problem with people who would call me inspiring. They would go, you know, Max, what you really inspire us. And I would be like, you know, I don't see what I'm doing as all that special. I would tell people, hey, I just show up, work my butt off to build a business and support or help support my family. And I just didn't see it as anything special. So people had to explain to me, yeah, Max, the problem is, is there are Way too many people out there who don't have an excuse, who don't have anything physical in their way, who still aren't uh, doing taking action to go after their dreams. And so the fact that a guy who has a natural built-in excuse doesn't use it is inspiring. And so it's the same thing when I travel. I I haven't really seen it as scary. Um, and I hope that I never do, because I think if it gets to the point where I start to go, well, and I really want to do that or not, then, you know, then maybe I will stop doing things that, that I enjoy. The other thing I, I like to tell people is you get good at taking these risks when you remember that I spent 12 years traveling around the, the country with a small carnival in a in a world of big carnivals. A lot of that time we were on the verge of bankruptcy. More than once, we weren't sure how we were getting to tomorrow or next week. Um, you know, you deal with failure and disaster and tragedy long enough, it gets to the point where you're like, well, "What the hell else can they do to me?" And mm. I hope that doesn't sound flippant. That's one of those questions you've asked me, and I'm trying to work through it in my mind to give people a good answer. I talked to this about a, to this to a friend of mine named Amy Amy Star Allen once, and I had asked her what she thought the answer was, and she said, "Well, Max, I think it's because when you do things, you're so focused on what you're doing that you don't have room in your brain for fear and i i thought about that too and as a blind person you know just traveling just in your own town crossing streets you're so focused on all mm-hmm. the non-visual stimuli that you have to take in in order to in order to travel and in order to live safely that there's only really so much stuff you can think about at one time so Perhaps it's the fact that I do focus, I treat everything as an experience and I'm trying to get the most out of what I'm doing right now instead of what I'm going to do tomorrow or what I did yesterday. That could be it too. I hope yeah. this helps people and I really wish I had one set answer where I could tell you, yeah, this is how I do it, this is how you can do it. But I think it's a combination of those things. It's uh experience yeah. overcoming setbacks. It's uh, having a positive attitude and it's staying focused on what you're doing.
0: Definitely. Those are th- like three very helpful tidbits that you just dropped there. And you mentioned earlier how you've written three books. You have your own podcast called What's Your Excuse? And for what I can tell, you know, you've dedicated much of your life to helping others. Tell me about the message you're spreading and what you want people to take away from your message.
1: Right. Well, I think that I have... Um, three key things that I am trying to help people with. The first one, I, and I'm starting to believe is actually the most important one, and that is to ask for help and accept help when offered. And I tell people all the time, I am one of the things that I am blessed with by being blind is I have no fear or stigma about asking for help or asking for opportunities. I was raised by people who were like, Max, your vision is going. Eventually, you will be blind. So don't ever be afraid to ask for help because people will want to help you. And if you don't ask for help, you're going to end up in more trouble than if you do. So I was raised with a whole different mindset than most of the world. Most of the world's been taught either directly or by uh, implication that if you ask for help, you're weak, unprofessional, um, that there's something mm-hmm. wrong with you. And so I don't have that problem. And I do my best to try to help other people to see that we're not meant to do this stuff all by ourselves. It's more fun when you when you bring other people along with you or allow other people to be part of your story and part of your journey. Uh, and uh, I recently gave a talk about this and one of the people who came up to me afterwards said, yeah, Max, interdependence is more important and more valuable than independence and that's one of, the, one of the things I'm really you know trying to get people to understand. The second is, is that we have to decide whether we're going to make excuses or find solutions. And the solutions don't have to be yours. They don't have to be perfect. Uh, they just have to be a good solution for the problem at the time, knowing that you can always come up with something better, maybe tomorrow or next week, or maybe somebody you know will suggest something better than what you're already doing. But you have to make that decision. Um, I could have decided that when Amtrak said, we're going to give you a train ticket to New York, but we're not going to give you the money to live in New York. I could have said, uh oh, I ain't going. But I decided that I'm going to find the money somehow. And eventually I did. Uh, We have to decide whether we're going to to find solutions, find a way, or whether we're going to go, "Eh, I can't do that. There's too many things in my way between here and there. And we talk ourselves out of those amazing experiences we could have had. And then the third thing is that those people who tell you to find the positive in everything, they're not saying that you should ignore the real world uh, setbacks. What I like to tell people is there is good in just about everything you do. The problem is, is that you have to look for it. Sometimes you have to look really hard for it. And it has to become a habit. So the first few times you do it, it's probably not going to feel like it's working. Um, you have mm-hmm. to just continue to do it over and over again. This is why affirmations don't work for a lot of people because they think they're going to work the first few times they do them. They're probably not. Uh, but you, if after a while of doing it over and over again, you build up a habit, then no matter what happens, you can find something good in it. I once went on a scout fishing trip where we lost the entire boat. But the guy who owned the boat, he showed us not to get negative. Uh, He spent the rest of the day teaching us how to cast properly. We never caught a fish, but we learned a new skill. And later on, we had a good fish dinner from the guys who did catch fish and didn't lose their boat. But you have to decide to find the positive. And I like to tell people it's just like finding anything else. It's just like finding the TV remote. You know it's there somewhere, and you keep looking until you find it. So those are my three things. Ask for help, accept it when offered, uh, decide to, to find solutions instead of make excuses, and always look for what little positive there may be in, in whatever just happened.
0: I feel like you just taught like a master class within like five minutes. That, those were three very, very helpful pieces of advice. How would you – I mean, you, you've already touched on it. How would you – Tell people who you know who always see the negative and decide to see the negative, how they can start seeing the positive. I know you said you know building up the habit. Is there anything else that you would say?
1: Yeah, but another thing that will help them is being exposed to to positive people. You know, if you're in a room full of happy people, it's hard to be sad. Some people still manage it, but it's not it's not easy. So I would say. Take a look at what you're reading, what you're watching on TV, the people mm. you, that you follow or, or um, listen to on social media. And these aren't new ideas. I mean, I'm not telling people here anything they probably don't already know, but replace those negative people with people that are uplifting. And I mm. usually, you know, at some point in these interviews, tell people, if, if you're not sure where to start, go to theblindblogger.net or find me on Facebook or LinkedIn or somewhere and start with me, or start with the host, because I generally don't uh, do interviews with people who are negative people. So, mm. uh, change your surroundings, change the people that you interact with, if possible. You know, and if if it's not possible, if it's a family member that's that's uh, dragging you down and making you negative, then limit your exposure. Let them know that you've decided you're no longer going to be a negative person, and if they want to be negative, they should not hang around you. And yeah, it may mean you see them a little less, but it may also mean they decide to change their outlook a little. Uh, you know, the old thing about setting boundaries. Sometimes the way you set boundaries is to just let people know what you're willing to put up with. And, you know, I have a brother who I share a house with. Um, he's a very passionate, outspoken person, especially on political and on these Philadelphia Eagles. And there <laughs> are sometimes when I just have to tell him, Patrick, you know my rule. I'm not a negative person. If you want to talk this kind of stuff, you got to go to the other room. Uh, (laughs) Sometimes I have to put on my headphones. Sometimes I have to go outside. But, you know, it's it's an arrangement that works for me. And one thing I like to tell people is, you know, a lot of those successful people you're looking at on Facebook and social media, they may be killing it 100%. They may be killing it 80%. I like to be totally honest with people. I like them to know you know, that I am successful. I'm doing the things I love doing by helping other people. That doesn't mean I can't I can't save on my rent by sharing a house with my brother. You know? (laughs) but to me, it's a positive. You know, I we help each other. You know, um I can't read the instructions on them stupid boxes. And I don't have a scanner for the mail. So there are lots of things we do for each other, including helping each other financially when it comes down to it. And These are the kind of things other bloggers and podcasters won't share with you because they feel like if they do, you're going to think less of them and you're not going to want to hire them. And Mm -hmm. I've even talked to coaches who are like, you know, Max, you could be authentic, but you could be much more positive and authentic at the same time. And I'm like, come on, I only know one way to tell this story. And the truth is the truth. So surround yourself with, with more positive, more uplifting people. Back to a comment you made earlier, you said those three points I made was like a master's class in just the five minutes. I appreciate that so much because, as you can tell, brevity is not my strong suit. When people <laughs> ask me to give a five-minute talk, I have I break out the sweat. So now, I, the next time somebody wants me to do a five-minute talk, I know what I can tell them. I can tell them I've got three, <laughs> I've got three points that will help people uh, accomplish their goals or something along those lines. So I really appreciate that.
0: Yeah, well, it's been awesome talking to you, Max, and thanks so much for coming on, sharing your story, your wisdom, um, you, you know, your honesty is so so refreshing, and your message is so inspiring. I know you're going to continue to make such a big impact on people's lives, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, is there anything you want to share before before we go?
1: Uh, just two things. One, uh, I really appreciate you having me on the show. I understand that even the podcasters that are making a living from their podcast don't do it for that reason. Most of them have a passion. Either to sh- to to uh, to inspire, or educate others, or to give people like me a place to share my story. And without guys like you, I wouldn't have these opportunities. And you know, I would have to go meet people face to face, and that's a whole lot more difficult than getting on the on uh, ZenCast or Zoom or whatever <laughs> and hanging out with you for a little while. So I really appreciate all the time and effort you put into this pre production, post production all that stuff that goes into a show. So thank you for that. And the second thing is, there is something each and every one of you can do every day. It may not be a big something, but if you get up in the morning and find find two things for me, find one positive person, event, or occurrence during your day and find one active concrete step you can take towards your goal, no matter how small. If you do those two small things every day, This time next year, you'll be on this podcast and I'll be sitting at home watching.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or if you learned something new, smash that subscribe button and leave us a quick review. Hustle and Motivate is presented by JokerMag.com, the
1: home of the underdog.